Well, I want to speak to you this morning about the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is like spiritual heart disease. And for most, it's a silent killer. I'm not sure if you knew that. Heart disease in its various forms is really the number one killer globally. It's known as a silent killer, though. It often starts off with hypertension. That's prolonged high blood pressure. Also, plaque starts to build up in your arteries. But these problems, these underlying problems, they come with no real symptoms. A person might feel just fine. Maybe they have some shortness of breath or a little bit of fatigue, heartburn. But who doesn't have that at some point? These issues, though, reach a tipping point where a person can have a heart attack. That's where blood flow to the heart itself stops and part of the heart tissue can die. This can in turn lead to heart failure where the heart can't pump enough blood to reach the whole body. And then there's the risk of stroke where a broken off piece of plaque reaches the brain and, and an artery bursts up there and real, real serious problem that might be. These are all serious conditions, but, but like I said, the underlying problem of them all is just this heart disease and it sneaks up on you. It builds slowly but surely over time. And then it has this cascading effect with drastic consequences. And like I said, sin is like spiritual heart disease. It's a silent killer. It's a deceitful killer. It lives within our hearts. And if left unaddressed, it builds over time. It deceives us into thinking that nothing is wrong with us. We're left believing we're spiritually healthy. But a tipping point is reached where the heart becomes fully hardened. And then sooner or later, sin will kill us eternally. I know it's not fun to talk about heart disease. No one likes to focus on their problems. But at the same time, it's necessary, isn't it? If we are to hope to get better. And likewise, we must not avoid the thought of our sins. You must not think little of this spiritual disease. You must not joke about it or ignore it or pretend you're immune. Instead, you must come to see the seriousness of your sin and the seriousness of its deceptive power. For in reality, we've all already been infected by this spiritual disease of sin, and we've all already been deceived by it. Non-believers, of course, are completely blind to sin, deceived by sin, living totally unaware of their true condition before the Lord and the judgment to come. But even believers can be deceived by sin. Though your eyes may be opened to sin's deceit, you're not immune to its effects, Now, even true believers, even those who have received a spiritual heart transplant by the Lord, can still have sin get in there and and clog some things up. Granted, there is complete forgiveness and salvation in Christ, yes, but that doesn't give us a license to sin, nor does it make us or enable us to escape the, the negative consequences of sin in this lifetime. So, beware. In reality, every single time we sin, we are being deceived. Every time we sin, we're buying the lie that this is good for us. This is going to bring satisfaction. There will be no real consequences. But sin doesn't advertise that those who sow to the wind reap the whirlwind. And so my point is simply this, that the reality of sin's presence in your life still should give you great pause. It should disturb you. It should wake you up 
just as much as a diagnosis of heart disease. You would take that news real serious. You'd seek to do something about it. How serious do you take the own sin in, in your heart? Because this is such a serious and universal condition, I want to speak to you this morning about the deceitfulness of sin. I want to expose sin's deceitfulness to you. The physician must first find and and diagnose the disease if you're going to have any hope of treating it and getting better. If the undetected cancer can never be cured, the hidden sin can never be repented of. But as the spotlight of God's word is is aimed on, on the dark corners of your heart, by his grace, it can be overcome. And so we want to use our time this morning in God's word to expose the enemy that lives inside all of us. And so what I want to do is build up a a basic little biblical theology of sin, what it is, how it works, how it deceives. And to do this, I want to just basically show you the timeline of sin. I want us to survey the timeline of sin so that you may no longer be deceived. It's simple enough. We'll begin with, Number one, how sin began. How sin began. We're just going to look at a little, the timeline of, of sin in this world. Where did our spiritual heart disease come from? At what point were we all infected? Well, we have to go back to the beginning, so you can open your Bibles now to Genesis chapter 3. I know this is familiar territory for you, but it bears repeating. Genesis 1 through 2, as you know, recalls the account of of creation, where God made a world without sin. But all that changes in Genesis 3, that the downward spiral into sin begins in the garden, and it's brought on by the chief deceiver himself, Satan. Genesis 3, look at verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. Notice right away, the first attack on humanity is an attack on God's word. And these these three little words, has God said. They lead Eve to do the, the least logical thing ever, and that is to doubt God. Right away, the first words out of Satan's mouth are deceptive. It's understand that inherent to the very existence of sin is deception. It's it's antithetical to truth. Verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And see now how the deception builds. Satan knew that in reality, the moment Adam and Eve disobeyed God and and ate the fruit, that they would die spiritually. In an instant, as if heaven and earth were torn apart, this massive chasm would erupt, separating God from man forever. And furthermore, what they sowed in the flesh, they would, or rather what they sowed in the spirit, they would reap in the flesh, and they would die physically eventually. 
Now, do you know what Eve should have said back to Satan? She should have said, you know, what do you mean we will be like God? We, we already are like God. He just made us in his image. Adam and Eve were already made to be like God in the image of God. But really, you see, what Satan was trying to do was to reform, to reshape mankind into his own image, a fallen image. And so verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. First comes a deception and now verse 6 comes the actual sin This is what the Apostle John would later call the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. Just look at how sin was deceived. The sin of rebelling against God promised satisfaction. The fruit was good for food. It promised pleasure. It was a delight to the eyes. And it promised freedom. It's able to make one wise. Yet there was no lasting satisfaction behind it, no lasting pleasure, no lasting freedom. So to the contrary, sin deceived Eve, stole her joy, and then enslaved her. You know, growing up in the hills of Burbank, we would get rats in the attic from time to time. So my dad would would set up this steel cage little trap. It's open on both ends, has a little lever in the middle, and the rat reaches the lever in the middle. The ends close, and it's trapped. And you know why this trap works? It's because rats don't know better. All they see is the cheese in the middle. They don't have eyes to see that they're walking into a steel trap. A trap that will ensnare them. And so it is with sin. If we only had eyes to see every time the trap has been set for us. Satan set the trap for Eve and she was deceived by sin. And she took the bait. But as 1 Timothy 2.14 tells us, Adam was not deceived. Adam was not deceived. He sinned willingly. As verse 6 says, as Eve is being deceived and falling into sin, Adam is right there next to her. But whereas Eve did not understand her rebellion until the end, Adam knew his from the beginning. And and this is why sin is is so dangerous. Look at the power of this temptation. It has the power to to trick you into thinking that the cheese is worth it, even if it costs you your life. You know the outcome. You know the consequences. You know the result, but you do it anyway. You're tricked into going for it anyway. That's that's scary. That's a powerful enemy. Verse 7. It says, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. First came the deception and then the sin. And now we start to see the results of the sin. The first being shame, shame. As their physical eyes opened, their spiritual eyes shut. And immediately they encounter the first consequence of sin, which is shame. When you sin, you should feel shame. If I were to stand up here and and read out loud a list of your sins, you would feel shame. 
And rightly so. That is an appropriate built-in response to sin. But already Adam and Eve were realizing that, that this sin was coming with a lot more than they bargained for. After shame, what comes next? Verse 8, it says, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. After the shame comes guilt. Guilt. This is another built-in consequence and result of sin. Immediately they felt the immense weight of their sin before God. It's like someone chained this heavy yoke around their necks and they, they couldn't get out from under it. They couldn't get rid of it. And notice how sin continues to deceive them in, in verse 8. Sin basically tricks you into living like a practical atheist. When you sin, you start to believe that, you know, God can't really see you. He's, he's not going to find out. You actually start to believe that you can hide from God's displeasure. I mean, just think of the audacity of this. God just created the whole universe with a few words. And now Adam and Eve really believe they can hide from God behind a tree. But every time we sin, we're really no different. We are likewise deceived. But Adam and Eve would discover that hiding your sin from God, it's not an easy thing to do. Verse 9, Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And God already knows the answers to all these questions. This is grace where he's giving Adam an opportunity to respond and repent. But, verse 12, the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. You see how it starts with deception, then comes sin, then shame, then guilt, and next, denial. Denial. Adam blame shifts. What's significant here is, is whom he blames. Most think he blames Eve, and, and in a way he obviously does, but even deeper than that, he's really blaming God. You know, this woman whom you gave me, she just gave me the fruit and I ate it, so it's really her fault, it's really your fault. I mean, who do you blame for your sin? Did the devil make you do it? Is it your spouse's fault? They just they, they made you do that? Or, or is God to blame? Do you think any of the, these excuses will work when you have to give an accounting for your sin? Verse 13, Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And you know that Eve blame shifts as well, but she now realizes that she has been deceived. Hindsight is twenty twenty, but that's how deception operates. When Satan shows you Sin City, he shows you all the bright neon lights. He shows you the fame, the fortune that, that could be yours. He drives you past all, the, all that you desire in your heart and says, you can have it. But he doesn't show you that one part of town, the one part where everyone ends up, and that's the graveyard. Well, in verse 14, God turns to the serpent and he asks no questions 
because God knows exactly who he is and God knows exactly what he has done. He has deceived the human race and plunged all mankind into sin. So God curses Satan. He curses the woman. He curses man. He even curses the earth itself. There is hope, though, in verse 15, where there's a promise of one who will come, who will crush the serpent's head. But in the meantime, jump down to verse 22. It says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out. How did this begin? How did sin and its deceitfulness begin? How did our spiritual death begin? It started with deception, which turned into sin, and then came shame, guilt, denial, and then lastly here, separation. Separation. I mean, look at all these unadvertised byproducts of sin. Like when Satan deceived Eve, Eve no, notice how he conveniently left all this out, that this was going to happen to them. He promised her pleasure and satisfaction and wisdom and life, but he forgot to mention the shame, the guilt, the denial, and the eternal separation from their good creator, God. And this is the beginning of the deceitfulness of sin. Have you ever heard of the humpback anglerfish? The humpback anglerfish. If you, we got kids. So if you've seen the movie Finding Nemo, you've seen the fish. It was in there. It's a deep sea fish. It has a huge mouth and these razor sharp, vicious teeth. It also has a long antenna sticking out of its head, and at the end of the antenna is a little bioluminescent light glows in the dark in the middle of the pitch black deep sea. And other small fish, they're attracted to the light. Nothing can be seen down there. This little light shows up. They, they go to the light. They want the light. But they, they can't see the razor-sharp teeth perched right behind the light, ready to devour them. And that really is a, a perfect picture of sin. It dangles the light in front of you. It tempts you with displeasure, but it never shows you all the consequences. Sin shows you drunkenness, but it doesn't show you life in jail from a drunk driving accident. It shows you sexual promiscuity, but it doesn't show you STDs or abortion. Sin shows you all of creation at your fingertips. It can be yours, but it doesn't show you the eternal separation from your good God and creator as well. And by the way, the humpback angler fish is also known as the black devil fish. That's an appropriate name. And so this is the deceitfulness of sin. This is how it all began. I mean, just, just one turn of the page from Genesis 2 to 3, everything's changed forever. God made creation perfect. Now it's imperfect. He made it sin-free. Now it's sin-cursed. He made it full of life. Now it's full of death. And I hope for some of you that the shade is lifting from your eyes. And you might even be starting to see the deceitfulness of sin in your own life. 
I hope that just by exposing you to this topic in Scripture, you may even be confronted and convicted about some of the ways that sin may have deceived you. Because like I said, we've all already been deceived in various times and places. This is a deadly, serious problem. And so we need to see how it began, how sin began. But secondly, now we need to see how it continues. This timeline of of sin in scripture, how sin continues. Number two, how sin began. Number two, how sin continues. We saw the deceitfulness of sin in the past. Now let's look at it in the present. What does the deceitfulness of sin look like after Genesis 3? Well, the short answer is it gets worse. It all gets worse. Sin and its deceitfulness go from bad to worse in the days after the fall. And as a case in point, since we're here, we might as well just look at Genesis 4. Just one generation after the fall, one more turn of the page and things go from bad to worse. And sin and its deception escalate to the point of murder. Already, there's murder. Earlier, we saw that the chain of the deceitfulness of sin starts with deception, then comes sin. And after that, what? The shame, the guilt, the denial, the separation. But as sin continues, there's actually one more product of the deceitfulness of sin. You see, if the shame and the guilt and the denial and the separation, if they go on for too long, there's one last result, and that is hardness. Hardness, a hardened heart. Sin slowly but surely hardens the heart until it's finally as as hard as stone. And the first person to fall prey to this was Cain. You probably recall Genesis 4, look at verse 3. It says, it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and for his offering he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. This text is brief. It seems most likely that God had given some prior instruction to Cain and Abel about how to offer before him, we presume. And Cain disregarded that instruction, it it seems likely. But either way, God was not pleased by Cain's offering. It was tinged with sin. So Cain's initial reaction was anger, then depression, His brother's true righteousness convicted him of his false righteousness. But note what God tells Cain. He says to him, sin is crouching at the door. And its desire is for you. Sin is crouching like a lion in the tall grass, in the tall grass rather, posed, ready to pounce on its prey. But God says you must master it. You must master it. With sin, it's kill or be killed. Either you kill it or it will 
kill you. Either you master it and get a handle of it, or it will master you. You have to remember that the sin that deceives you, it wants to kill you. Spiritually, eternally, before God. Romans 5.12 says, Just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. In Romans 6.23, as you know, it says, For the wages of sin is death. That's what you get. Death. Sin breeds death. Its desire is to see your soul extinguished in hell forever. And so, what are you going to do about it? Will you deal with sin the way God tells you, or, or will you let it master you? Cain chose the latter. He was deceived by his sin, and his heart was hardened. And so look at verse 8. Cain told Abel, his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? In the same way that God questioned Adam and Eve, he questions Cain. Again, God knows the answers. But notice the difference in Cain's response from Adam and Eve's response to this divine questioning. Just to see the hardness of his heart. Unlike Adam and Eve, Cain doesn't even bother trying to hide from God. Unlike Adam and Eve, he, he doesn't even feel shame or guilt anymore. And unlike Adam and Eve, instead of blame shifting, he just lies straight to God's face. And so just like Adam and Eve, God curses Cain, but the result now is an even greater separation from God. At this point, Cain's heart was as hard as, as rock. He was only concerned with protecting his own sin. And, and you see, the longer you stay in your sin, the harder your heart will get, that those arteries are getting clogged up. And there will be a stroke sooner or later. Like clay in an oven, soon it will become as hard as stone. Has this happened to you? Maybe in the past? Maybe for a season? Has a callus grown over your heart where you don't even feel bad sinning anymore? That's a dangerous place to be. And sin still deceives like this today. Cain was not the only one to be deceived like this. There have been many more, countless more throughout the ages. Even some godly men and women can be so deceived and, and in a way temporarily hardened by sin with disastrous effects like Noah deceived into drunkenness after the flood as he desired pleasure. Moses was deceived into not believing God's word as he struck the rock for water. David was deceived into murder and adultery as he sought to satisfy his pleasures. And Solomon was deceived into idolatry as he sought to find power apart from God. Even good and godly men and women can fall prey to sin's deceptive power. This is how the deceitfulness of sin continues. But God's message to us, in a way, hasn't really changed. Sin is crouching at the door. And its desire is for you. But you must master it. You have to be made aware of your sin. 
And then you've got to do something about it. What, what can we hope to do? Well, understand, even for those who have faith in Christ, who are in Christ by faith, we're free from the penalty of sin, but we're not yet free from the presence of sin. Sin can still stumble us, and therefore Scripture is just filled with these calls for us to watch out, to be on guard. We are called to self-examination and even mutual examination in an effort to not let sin master us. Let's turn now to Hebrews 3. You can flip on over to Hebrews chapter 3. As you're turning, I'll read for you, but you'll catch up. Hebrews 3, 12 and 13. He says, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Hebrews 3, 12 and 13. In the context, the author of Hebrews, he's talking about the Israelites in the wilderness. And even though they witnessed countless miracles, they saw the, the manifestation of God's presence, still they were deceived by their sin into idolatry. Over time, their hearts were hardened and they just fell away in unbelief. And he's writing that we would not follow their example. He says, take care, brethren. This word for take care, blepo in the Greek, it's a word of sense, perception. He's literally commanding people to, to wake up, open their eyes, come to their senses. He says, take care, pay attention that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. He's telling them to inspect their own hearts, to investigate the condition of their own souls. You know, I think some people today, they, they look after more their own bank accounts or fantasy football team or, or their grades or their stock portfolio more than they look after their own soul. But the heart must be examined. Is there some secret sin clogging your spiritual arteries, leading you to be spiritually lethargic? Has the plaque of worldliness restricted your blood flow so that even your affections for God are dimmed? You just don't have much of a desire for the things of the Lord. It's a serious threat, and we're called not to deal with it passively, but actively. He says, verse 13, But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today. As you see yourself or others being slowly poisoned by the deceitfulness of sin, you are called to get involved. You have to step in, he says, and encourage them. This command to encourage is from the word parakaleo in the Greek. It means to encourage, to exhort, to help someone. It's a picture of where you come alongside your brother or sister in love, and you lovingly but firmly push them along in the faith. Help them along. Sometimes you find someone and they're, they're already broken by their own sin and you, you lovingly encourage them and build them back up. Others, you might find a, a brother or sister who's on the road of, of being hardened and you're called to lovingly admonish them, exhort them, to turn them back. Either way, you have to get involved and look out for one another 
sin is too deceitful. We must help one another in this race. And this needs to happen all the time. Encourage one another day after day, continually, as long as it's still called today. Just another way of saying every day, all the time. As long as there's sin, this needs to happen. Every single day you should be looking out for yourself, one another, and encouraging one another in the faith to to keep pursuing Christ and to turn from the sin which continues to nip at our heels. And why should you do this? Well, it's a big deal. He says at the end of verse 13, why we encourage one another. So that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And there will be times when those around us in the church, they will fall prey to the deceitfulness of sin. And left unchecked, that sin will carry them away like a little paper boat in a stream. But as we, or we in the church rather, we're called to help them, to turn them back before they reach the waterfall. Any church that, like Israel, develops a culture of tolerating sin in the camp will itself fall away. The true church must not be a place where sin is accepted in the name of secular tolerance, but rather the the true church must be a place where sin is, is lovingly confronted in the name of holiness and faith. Again, it's my prayer that this morning you're you're just being made more aware of the deceitfulness of sin, that it will be a a silent killer no longer. Have you neglected to watch over your own heart? And what about the heart of your brother or sister? Keep in mind, this necessitates fostering loving and caring relationships in the church, right? To do this, if you're one who you come late, You leave early, you leave right away after church, you don't talk to anybody, you make no connections. You have no chance of encouraging one another and doing this. And this also means that you have a greater likelihood of being hardened by sin yourself. Who's encouraging you? If you just, you know, run off, you're just an attendee. That's not what the church is. That the veil be lifted from your eyes, he tells us. Let your apathy be exposed. Just wake up. Sin and its deceitfulness continue. So you must be ever vigilant in examining yourself and encouraging one another in your pursuit of Christ. This is how sin continues. But thankfully, it won't continue forever. And we can finish now with number three, how sin ends. How sin ends. And let's turn now to the end, to Revelation 20. Let's go there, Revelation chapter 20. It's extremely important to consider the end of sin and its deceitfulness. God will not tolerate sin and rebellion forever. Sin will come to an end. The deceitfulness of sin will come to an end. And the great deceiver himself will come to an end. And this end is foretold in Revelation chapter 20. It starts off verses 1 through through 3, rather, where Satan himself is bound in the abyss for a thousand years so that he would not, what, deceive the nations any longer. But then he's released after the millennial kingdom. And what does he do? Verse 8, 
He deceives the nations. And he leads those in a one final rebellion against God. But this time, there's not even a battle with just a word they're consumed. And then comes the fiery end. Look at verse 10. It says, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Don't be misled. Satan is not the ruler of hell. He's the chief prisoner, and he will receive greater torment than any. This is his end, and he knows it. The serpent of old who brought sin into the world will be taken out. And all those who have joined him in deception will likewise join him in his end. Verse 11 says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which was the book of life, and the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. Verse 15 says, And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And so you know what we learn from this? We learn how sin ends. And this is how it ends. The ultimate end is judgment. Right? We saw, we saw the ends of sin. There's shame. There's guilt. There's denial. There's separation. If that turns into hardness and doesn't change, there will just be the ultimate end, and that is judgment. God is not mocked. He's not deceived. In his wisdom, he's allowed man in his rebellion to persist for the time being. But a day will come where, when God will right all wrongs. He will resolve all deception. This judgment is the end of sin. And it's the end of all those who have been deceived and have likewise deceived in sin. This is how sin ends. Now at this point, there's a good chance you're thinking to yourself, this is not a very uplifting sermon. And this all sounds like bad news, and, and so far you'd, you'd mostly be right. Like sin and its deceitfulness, they are bad news. Sin and its deceitfulness are not uplifting. I know that sin is not a popular subject. This is the, the type of thing that drives most people out of the church. It's just too serious. But you know what? So be it. Because you, you must understand that sin is serious. And only a wicked physician with, would, would withhold telling you you have fatal heart disease because he's scared you might leave his practice. That's not love. Yeah, that's what most churches do today. That They're too scared to talk about sin. It's, it's, you know, they don't want people to leave. It's too serious. But you must learn that your sin wants to kill you eternally. Who else will tell you? And rather, we need to be confronted by God's word uh, of the deceitfulness of our own sin all the time. That we would not neglect our foe. So look, you're right, this, this is a downer, this is depressing, this is bad news. But you know what, there's also good news, right? You know that part too, that there, there is good news here. And see, here's how it works. The more you truly reckon 
with the bad news. Not someone else's, your bad news. And the more you can truly appreciate the good news. You see, I do want you to have hope and to be lifted up and to leave here even encouraged. Even after all this talk of sin and this deception, that you would still leave encouraged. But you see, that encouragement doesn't come by ignoring sin and preaching life tips. It comes by acknowledging our sin, but then remembering Christ. And just remembering Christ. You see, Scripture teaches that grace has come. And that grace is greater than all of our sins. That, that sounds like good news. You see, God is a just judge, but he's also a gracious redeemer. And so, in the very moment that Satan plunged the world into sin, God already made a promise of salvation, that one would come who would crush the serpent's head. And that promise was expanded over the centuries, like we read this morning in Isaiah 53. It was even revealed that God himself would come down in human flesh, and he would die to pay the penalty for all of our sins, that we might be fully forgiven and reconciled to God, our creator. And that promise has come in Christ Jesus. By his death and resurrection, we can be freed from our bondage to sin and made alive. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 says this. It says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Christ, likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through the fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Spiritual slavery. You know, after being deceived by sin, we all were blinded and enslaved. But Christ came to redeem blind slaves and to free them, and to give them new life. And he did it by dying in their place. Romans 6, and 23 says, But now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification. And the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I don't know if you've seen a, this movie, Slumdog Millionaire. I'm like 10 years old now, but it is pretty sad. It takes place in the slums of India where people literally live in, in filth and, and garbage. There's this scene where these men in India, they rescue these orphans. They raise them. They seemingly take care of them. They look like the good guys. But in reality, they have deceived these orphans, and they aim to enslave them. And so when the kids get old enough, they tie them up, they burn out their eyes, and then they put them on the streets to beg. Because the blind kids can make more money begging than the seeing orphans. And these orphans, now blind, they can't escape their new masters. They have nowhere to go, no means to get there. They're totally lost. They're literally blind and enslaved. And as tragic as this is, what, what a picture of, of us, of what sin and Satan have done to all of us. This is our spiritual condition before the Lord. 
lost, enslaved, blind, no hope. But this is why Christ came. He came because he knew this was our spiritual condition and he took, he took pity on us. And on the cross, he died to redeem us, to free us. That we would have a new master, new eyes, a new heart, free from this sin disease. And now we just wait for the day when he will return to, to take us to our new home. And we're orphans no longer. That we've even been adopted into our Heavenly Father's family. You see, all of this is true for those who are in Christ by faith. And this is, this is the good news. And as we read in Romans 6, it, it comes it's a free gift by God's grace in Christ. But to receive this gift of life, you must turn away from your sin and you have to turn to Christ as your Lord and truly submit to him and all your sin to him as Lord. Sin's deceiving power is great such that many continue to refuse Christ, continuing to buy the lie that, no, I think my sin is better. This is worth it. This is better. My ways are better than God's ways. I should rule on the throne of my heart. But I pray the blindfold is lifted from your eyes this morning. And with new eyes, you see the serpent of sin for what it is. Because then you will run to Christ on your own. And he's your only hope. Repent of your sins, turn away from them, turn to Christ by faith, and he will save you. The end of sin is judgment. But Christ alone can save you from this end and instead give you eternal life. Life reconciled to God your creator, as in the garden once again. And this offer likewise stands as long as it's called today. But you must not delay because the end will come suddenly. And for those of you here now who are already in Christ, you've already seen this and turned to Christ by faith. Well, now, having reflected on sin, considering Christ, now I hope you're encouraged. Now I hope you're, you're uplifted because you, you see, you've, it's like you're the person who's gone into the doctor's office and he says, I've got a lot of bad news for you. And he just spills, you have fatal heart disease. It, it's, it's a terrible prognosis. It's depressing. It's crushing. But then that good doctor tells you, but you know what? I alone have a cure. And here you go. And you're, you're healed. You're instantly healed. And it's true. It's real. Well, then, despite the crushing blow, you would really feel a lot better. You would, you would rejoice. You would give thanks because life has been given back to you. And you see, in Christ, you've been freed, for those of you who know him, from sin's power, sin's penalty. You were dead, but now you're alive. You were lost. Now you're found. You were blind. Now you can see. Should you not give thanks? Should you not rejoice? Should that not put a smile on your face that you have Christ? And one day we will even be freed from sin's presence. That day is not today. That day is to come. But this turns into our mission now, where as we live on in the flesh to serve God, we know that sin remains in us, but let Christ's sacrifice just drive you to, to greater holiness for his sake. Galatians 5:24 and 25 says, Now those who belong to Christ Jesus 
have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. See, we've been granted this new life by God's Spirit. So walk in newness of life. Guard against secret sin. Don't let it entangle you any longer. Don't let it trip you up in this race. God has given a new life to you. You you had a death sentence, but here's new life. Here's a new heart. Here's a new destiny. Here's a new hope. We're in a race now of glorifying God, pursuing Christ and Christ-likeness. And so our call now is to remain on guard, to not let sin stumble and trip us up or others any longer. Sin is still crouching at the door, but you must master it. Apart from Christ, we have no hope. But in Christ, we've already overcome and we can continue to overcome sin to the glory of God. So press on. Press on in the race. In joy, in hope, in holiness after Christ. To finish, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This is what Christ did for us. And now we will run after him for his glory, for his name's sake. Let's press on. Let's pray. Our Lord God in heaven, we thank you for your word this morning, which which speaks true to our heart. We know your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It, it pierces us to our, our very core, our being, our heart. It lays us bare and exposes all of our sin. And that's me included, Lord. We all have this congenital heart defect. We all have a spiritual sin in our lives that separates us from you. It leads to shame and guilt, denial, separation. For some, even hardness and and judgment, a judgment that's deserved. You are purely holy and good and righteous and true. And yet we, like, like our ancestors, have only turned away. But Lord, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for your own love and your plan, your promise of a Savior, one who would come and die in our place. Take away our our guilt and our shame. Solve our separation by reconciling us through his own blood. This was Christ Jesus, and, and he has died. He has risen, and the salvation has come. We thank you for it, Lord, and we believe for any who don't. Convict them this morning by your word that they would turn. It's never too late until that day comes. May they turn today, Lord, and and just find the weight lifted, the guilt gone, the shame vanished, reconciliation immediate in Christ. And for us in Christ, may we continue to press on. The race can be long and arduous. Sin continues to trip us and and tangle us, but Lord, may we just press on. Give us continued grace to seek you, to seek Christ in holiness and to beware our, our ancient foe. We know that we already have victory in Christ, so in this we rejoice and press on. To your glory we pray. Amen.